Hi, I'm Tia Kramer, director of The Project Room. This month, I sat down with Natasha Marin, Seattle-based poet and performance artist and co-founder of Spox, Seattle People of Color Salon. Natasha's immersive and interactive performances, socially engaged artworks, and new ebook all explore ideas of connection, community, and play. Join us as we discuss how masquerades, Canadian friendliness, and motherhood have all influenced her thoughts on personal and creative legacy. Thanks for listening. We're recording. Hi. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Welcome. Thanks so much for coming. Thank you for having me here. Especially. I love the project room. Especially on a rainy day. Yes. That was exactly what I, this is the perfect mm-hmm. place to be on a rainy it's day. Cozy. <laughs> so having spent a lot of time thinking about all of the many facets of things that you do, and there are so, so many, um, I thought it would be interesting to start with your origins, particularly because of our big question of how are we remembered. Mm, yeah. And I know you grew up in, or were born in Trinidad and grew up in Canada. Yes. How did these places influence your creative practice? I love this question. Um, I always feel like a pathological liar when I go to parties because I find myself saying that I'm from different places to different people and then I wonder if they talk to each other are they going to say like well she said she was from Trinidad to me but she said she was from Canada to me and she said she's from Seattle to me so what's going on um but yeah I was I was born in Trinidad in Port of Spain and I didn't live there very long I was about three when I left and I moved to Vancouver I mean by way of other places in Canada I lived in Calgary which is cold and miserable place. <laughs> How um, long were you in Calgary? I think I blocked it out. I mean, maybe two <laughs> or three years. It was, you know, Calgary's like the Texas of Canada, except it's cold. So there's just, I mean, it's a lot. It's a lot going on there. And I'm just going to stop myself before I offend anybody. <laughs> so, there's that. But um, Canada's had a huge influence on my work because Canadian foreign policy is about friendship. We were taught, like we practiced friendship techniques, after school specials about friendship, cooperation, billboards on the highway about, you know, sharing. This is real in Canada. Like the 1980s in Vancouver. Yeah, it was just, it was like growing up in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. Like friendship and kindness was really Reinforce. So I have these My Little Pony values about sharing and cooperation that are completely because of Canadian propaganda growing up. And I take that into everything that I do. Like, I actually do believe in friendship and sharing and cooperation in a way that, you know, most grown people don't believe in these things anymore. And then Trinidad has been a weird influence because I find myself sort of spontaneously manifesting Trinidadian cultural practices, even Hmm. though I didn't grow up in Trinidad. I grew up in Canada. So I didn't realize the midnight tea was like a traditional masquerade practice that I just 
like it was an idea I came up with, but not because I was Trinidadian. It wasn't until I was I was at the National Women's Studies Association conference presenting on the Midnight Tea, and a Trinidadian professor stood up and was telling me how Trinidadian my project was, which was very, it was validating, but also vulnerable because I didn't, I, I wasn't prepared. I guess it's like when you're in your critique, you know, mm-hmm. so I'm thinking of grad school critiques and you've written a poem about a flower and suddenly somebody's telling you like, wow, this is really about like homoeroticism in the 19th century. And you're <laughs> like smiling and nodding like, mm, okay, sure it is. <laughs> you know, waiting to see how that turns out. But yeah, um, Trinidadianness has just been spontaneously emerging and, and I'm, I'm using Trinidadianness for shorthand for like uh, diverse practices, um, multivalent thinking, multiculturalism, mm-hmm. not one thing happening at a time, but many things happening. Um, I'm thinking of the way in uh, Trinidad, obviously everyone who could colonize Trinidad colonized Trinidad so that's you know the French the British the Spanish the Dutch we're getting a lot of background noise we are it's exciting (laughs) at the project room today there's stuff going on hopefully that person will live um but yeah I I'm shocked and surprised to see sort of the after the hindsight Mm -hmm. cultural vision um coming out in my work but mm-hmm. a lot of stuff, I mean, you know, you're an artist. We don't, you don't create what you're creating because you're American. You know, it, it happens. It is coinciding. It's simultaneous. Mm-hmm. But most of us, um, unless that's what our project is about, you know, we're thinking about something more nuanced, you know, so. Yeah, I think it's having spent a lot of time looking and thinking about your work and then doing a little bit of research into Trinidadian is that Trinidad, Trinidadian, mm-hmm. Trinidadian masquerades? I was yeah. like, this is so interesting. I which came, I wonder which came first. Yeah, no, I, the idea came first and the Trinidadianness came second. Unless I, which I believe, I think maybe some things are hard-coded into our DNA. Um, I think of the kind of person I am. And I think of the fact that I come from people who every single year, like clockwork, strip down to like feathers and sparkles and dance down the street and I think yeah like those are definitely my people because with or without carnival which I've never been to I do find ways to strip down to sparkles and feathers like every chance that I get and parade whether it is you know on the street or in an intimate group at midnight you know I don't know it's a good question yeah I I think one of the things about your creative practice is that it emerges in so many different forms. You identify yourself as a poet and an interdisciplinary artist, and yet in looking at your work, there's such a strong performative quality that I could see you identifying as a performance performer first, and then there's the side of you that's an organizer um, who works with the Seattle People of Color Salon or founded the Seattle People of Color Salon, and there's this interest in socially engaged work and inter- interactivity. Mm-hmm. So with all of these practices, is there one that feels kind of like your native tongue? 
You know, <clears throat> I ask myself that a lot, usually about the time when I'm trying to create a bio, <laughs> you know, so it's regular, regular inter interrogations with myself of like, what am I doing? Um, and why does it have to come out in all these different forms? And I think of poetry as kind of like the blueprint. So, you know, um, mandala paintings? Mm -hmm. So they're mm -hmm. these, you know, flat, two-dimensional. I mean, they are three-dimensional, but for the sake of, like, the universal unconscious, collective unconsciousness, they're two-dimensional. They're drawings. But what they are are, like, blueprints of temples. And you're supposed to meditate and imagine the, the temple forming in three dimensions. Mm -hmm. And I think poetry is like a mandala for me so it's my blueprint and um, the final project or temple comes out in various forms you know so it could be video or it could be an interactive happening um, it could be an organizing project because organizing I think there's an art to organizing mm -hmm. I really do it doesn't feel separate from my art practice I just think if I were a painter I would paint with people like, I really mm -hmm. enjoy the medium of people. Mm -hmm. you know, so. Which ties right back to that Canadian oh, yeah. friendship. <laughs> Skipping through rainbows, <laughs> saving dolphins. <laughs> and do you, think, do you think that there's one question that's at the root of all of these practices? Or are there, like, a series of questions? Well... Besides asking myself, why am I doing what I'm doing and who am I? You know, the classic, who are we? Where are we going? Uh-huh. Go, Goganian. Can you say Goganian? Did I just make up that word? <laughs> it's a Goganian question. <laughs> I say go for it. Um, yeah, we're just going to play that off because, you know, I mastered the English language. So at that point, you could just make up words. Um, I do think uh, that people are people. And we've done so much to separate ourselves from each other. It's so elaborate, you know, gender. What an interesting hallucination gender is, you know? We all know that it's more complex mm -hmm. than just genitalia. We know <laughs> that. You don't have to explain that to anyone. Everybody knows that. Yet everyone subscribes to this idea of gender. We call ourselves women, we call ourselves men. Um, that's so simple. It's not nearly as complex as the experience. You know, we separate ourselves into races and nationalities. And I don't know what we're getting from that. Like, I don't know that as a species, it's helping us to evolve all the delineating, you know? Mm -hmm. So I guess I'm interested in like how that works. And along those lines, I'm very interested in language and communication. Like what is the mechanism that connects us to each other? Um, if you take away language, what does communication look like, you know? Uh, how, does, how does connection happen across uh, socioeconomic barriers, um, age, uh, education? How do you mm -hmm. cross those thresholds and make connections so that the togetherness, that strength, can do something bigger, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. I think about this YouTube video that I saw years ago. I want to say these two shepherds in Scotland had this idea 
and they wired up all their sheep, like thousands of sheep with like LED lights in different colors. And then they herded these sheep into like recreations of like the Mona Lisa and stuff. But these, these sheep, they didn't know they were part of this beautiful, bizarre, eccentric art project, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but they were part of something bigger. And I just think that, you know, as humans, we could be like those sheep and we could do something bigger than our individually LED-wrapped selves <laughs> and, and make something really, I don't know, important that we're proud of, you know? But I think we have a lot of work to do. Just basics like communicating and making friends uh, before we can do that. Mm -hmm. So it's really interesting because it also ties that idea of becoming something or being a part of something bigger is so intimately connected to your tea ceremonies. And I think one of the things that's so fascinating to me about that, the midnight teas, is that you have. You've been doing them since 2008. Yes. You've done them in so many different places. China, Thailand, India, Yay. Seattle, <laughs> Finland. <laughs> um, so much fun. And I can't help but to think they're, they're like these performative poetic monuments. And monument is one of, monuments are one of the big um, project room topics right now. And I... I keep coming back to and looking at them in order to revisit a project. There has to be something in it that feels continually compelling to you. Yes. And something that feels important. And so I want to ask what, what about what brings you back to that project and what feels really important about it? Oh, I'm so glad you asked me that because then I get to ask myself that because I asked myself that question. Because I am so surprised. I am the most flighty, like, mermaid mind person. I don't actually have the ability to follow through with things nearly as much as I want to think of myself that way. I get easily distracted. And um, I didn't start this project thinking I would be doing it seven years later. It was just an idea that I had. And I have a knack for turning ideas into reality. Um, and I was excited to begin a project that was inspired by my practice of the traditional Japanese tea ceremony and what I knew of Caribbean carnival culture. And I didn't think it would, I didn't even necessarily think it would work or not. It was just, let me try this thing. So I get a studio in Vancouver. It's December. The first tea happened on, I think, December 13th, 2008. Um, my studio was an abandoned, like it was above an abandoned butcher shop in the worst part of Canada, all of Canada, the worst part of all of Canada. So this is like the Maine and Hastings area. I used to take my friends along there and I would call it a crackhead safari. Like it's not, it's not beautiful. It's rat-filled alleys, you know, there's plenty of sketchy characters um, milling about. And I would ask strangers to meet me at midnight, you know, so I was already intrigued with like, who are you people, you know, who just randomly want to do this art ritual with somebody pretending to be a ghost, you know, at midnight. Um, and people came, people came and they played with me. And it was, it was incredible. There was a moment 
during that first tee where the first snow of the season started. And you just look through these giant picture windows and the amber street lights mm-hmm. and the snow is just coming down diagonally. And I had a Koto player playing. So you, you, could just, you can almost imagine like the acoustics of like a Koto, which mm-hmm. already sounds kind of ghostly, like Aeolian and the snow falling outside. And I did some buto and I think I, I actually danced naked the very first tee. It was freezing cold. Um, it was just bizarre. My sister was there. And I remember after the tea finished, she walked up to me and she said, Natasha, you play weird. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, yes, I do. And the videographer for that event, he said he wasn't sure if it was going to be a cult suicide or not. Like he wasn't sure if he was about to witness a bunch of people like drink purple Kool-Aid and then slip away. (laughs) So it was interesting that it worked. And what I got from that was, hey, I can, I can co-create things with other people. Like I can have a vision. I can invite people into the vision with me, and it's okay that I don't know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And that is what keeps me going back. That intrigue. The same thing I think that makes people want to check out a midnight tea. Like, hey, there's this thing that's sort of vaguely described on this website here. You want to check this out with me? And people come because they're curious and a lot of them think they get to just watch and then you're in the midst of something that you have to make with me and you have agency just as much as I do. Mm-hmm. And at the end, you know, everyone always feels different at the end. Mm-hmm. Every single time people come in one way and they leave a different way and they leave more connected to each other and most of the time people are strangers like complete and utter strangers from each other and I'm just fascinated it's like my laboratory it's my mad scientist laboratory and that's why I keep doing it because I keep seeing fascinating new data and I'm still trying to make sense of make Mm. sense of it with those early teas, did you have rituals that carried on that have carried on since then that you created at that time, or or had, did it evolve pretty dramatically from one to the next? The tea is still the tea in that twelve people meet at midnight. Um, they receive roles and assignments. So you, as Tia, would like let go of your daily identity and take on a new identity. And those 12 identities are always the same every time. And you would have an assignment. And if I could research you on the internet beforehand, I would try to tailor what I ask you to do to who you are um, so that if you're a painter, maybe you'll have an opportunity to paint. Maybe you'll paint in a way that you haven't painted before. Maybe you'll paint with sound or with movement, but I try to keep people somewhat in their comfort zone so that they can be relaxed enough to like kind of experiment and do new things. Um, There's always tea, uh, except in Kentucky where people weren't really excited about tea. So I served a round of bourbon and everybody was on the same page after that. (laughs) Lexington, Kentucky. And at every tea, I am Miko Kuro, who 
is, I guess, like a persona um, that's one part like ghost, one part geisha, and one part um, mad woman in the attic, like white sargasso sea, you know, Antoinette. So it is literary, <laughs> like my origins. Um, so that's, that's, it's always time, tea, and technology is the midnight tea. Those are the ingredients. And of course, people, it's impossible to do mm-hmm. without people. Mm-hmm. And I, I think of you calling yourself a poet in which you, poetry you often make in this solo practice. Yeah. And I've heard descriptions from attendees who say this is like poet, poetry that is emerging around you, that's coming alive. Can you talk a little bit more about people's involvement or why that feels so important to you? Yeah, I was, um, you know, the tea also grew out of just going to graduate school in a place where I was realizing that a lot of people in academia are just kind of saying the same things to each other. Uh, So I was interested in like having conversations outside of your normal circle of conversation partners. So um, what I ask people to do with the tea is keep one foot in their comfort zone, but take the other foot and like hokey pokey it, like shake it all about, see what happens. And that one foot that's instability allows people to experiment a lot more than they may even have envisioned themselves doing Mm. at the beginning. And then there's something that happens when you see other people around you also equally freaked out with no idea of what's happening so every tea is kind of like it's like tea tea steeping you know people have to steep into the tea zone it takes a while there is a definite period of discomfort before we all are together and during those moments you know anything can happen there have been movement artists, there have been dancers, there have been singers, there have been installation artists, there have been healing artists, you know, people who do massage, Reiki, and um, uh, people who are uh, sort of well-versed in the occult. It's it's, It's not a religious ritual in any way, but I think there is a spiritual quality to people working together Mm -hmm. towards a goal, like a shared goal. And the shared goal of every tea is to sort of honor the creative spirit that exists in in everybody. You know, you may not call yourself an artist, but at the tea, if you're one of the 12 guests, you are an artist. Like you are, whatever Mm -hmm. artist is, is magically bestowed upon you. And you know, that's it. You just accept it. You're an artist now. And so seeing what people do, like seeing a quiet poet who's suddenly given a performance role, you know, who's never done anything Mm -hmm. off the page or a movement artist giving them charcoal and asking them to like paint people, you know, it's exciting to see what happens. It's, it's a laboratory. And because it's so experimental, failure isn't really an option. Like how you fail at the tea is by not trying to involve yourself, you know, keeping yourself from the processes how you would fail and some people have failed but they're only failing themselves not me like I'm always delighted like we in the corner like I can't believe this is happening again it's fantastic how many in total have you done I think 
is 37 now. Either 36 or... I've either just finished 36 and I'm on 37 or I just finished 37. Wow. But what was the last tea that I did? Was that Bangkok? I think, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was an incredible event. Like, as I told you the last time we were talking, I have never been in a space where I was surrounded by women screaming a scream of freedom and relief and joy. Like, I, I'm not even sure you hear that individual scream very often. You know, a woman screaming doesn't call to mind a pleasant sound for most people. But I got to experience plural women screaming in a way that was like listening to an opera. Like it was, it was beautiful. Mm. It was multi-layered mm-hmm. and um, it was like, like a flower opening around you, like sitting in a giant pink lotus that's like opening. And I, I just, I'll never forget that feeling. I'll never forget that. And I, and seeing the women's faces, just like watching people release the tension that we all carry with us, all the expectation of what it means to, you know, be a woman, the second sex or whatever, was really, really validating. Mm-hmm. And, and not for any personal reason. Like, I didn't feel like I did anything except make a space for these people to be the incredible people they already were before I got there, you know, so. So interesting. It was great. So interesting. (laughs) And, you know, I can't help but to think about, again, like revisiting your many roles, that community and social engagement are so integral to your work. And in addition to these interactive performances, you're also the co-founder of Spox, Seattle People of Color Salon. And I just keep thinking, like, what inspired... It's such a different... I mean, that is such a different type yeah. of group engagement. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what inspired you and Davida Ingram to start yeah. that? Well, Davida is already a superstar in Seattle. So Davida didn't, didn't need me for anything in particular. But I definitely needed Davida because she knows everyone. She knows everyone. And you need someone who knows all of the people to begin anything like Spox. So for me, I was inspired because I was lonely. I mean, straight up, I lived in Seattle from 2008 to 2010. I researched like who are the people in the arts community that I should know. I reached out to people. I, you know, Care Bear stared many people with my <laughs> Seattle, I made a Seattle thing. And I didn't realize culturally that that's kind of terrifying Seattleites like a beam of unfiltered friendliness could be received as a threat here I did not not (laughs) anticipate that um so I was I was pretty lonely and I was going to Vancouver every other week to do midnight teas so I didn't really get a firm foothold here even though when I was here half the month I was trying um so it was loneliness it was loneliness I had a new baby and like many artist moms, like I think Jennifer Zwick does a lot of stuff like this too. I wanted to keep my practices alive, mm-hmm. um, but also be able to be a mom. And for me, that meant entertaining was more feasible than going out. So having people come to me so that I could have a community um, was the most convenient way for, for me to do this. Um, and I say convenient, although 
as many people know, hosting, you know, 50 to 100 people at your house may not be convenient per se. <laughs> um, but I, I, I enjoy hosting, so it wasn't a problem for me. So for the first two years, Spots pretty much, you know, was at my house. And, you know, Thanksgiving, it's like bring a dish, come over. Um, people had, you know, vices of whatever kind available to them. Childcare was always available because my kids were always there. So it was easy to go to my house and know that you're going to be surrounded by people of color there who are interested in the arts and people made friends. A lot of people already knew each other, but maybe didn't have a, a home base like that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where um, there's a lot of expectations on the people who are already active in the arts community. Like you're probably at max capacity. So you may not need another community that's going to ask you to do something for them. You may need a community where you can go drink a glass of wine, buy a crackling fire and laugh together with people about whatever's happening in your life. And in those situations, like on the golf course, a lot of business actually does get done. Like a lot gets accomplished. Right. right. So it was, it, it worked because it was set up to work, you know? Anything Davida touches turns to gold anyway. And I was just about naive and ignorant enough to try this in Seattle. Like, hey, let's make friends in Seattle. It'll be great. Um, and, it, and it worked. It worked. Um, Spox is, you know, like over 2,000 people strong, has received lots of support from the city of Seattle, mm-hmm. Office of Arts and Culture, the Department of Neighborhoods. Um, there's people like Karen Towering and Lola Peters. Um, Naomi Ishitaka, Tim Lennon, all these people have worked super hard uh, making Spocks what it is today. Um, like the tea, there's no possible way I could have ever done this by myself. Mm-hmm. You know, in the tradition of salons of old, it's it's a matriarchal tradition. Women start salons. Um, so Davida and I started a salon. Um, we used to joke that it was like her sperm to my egg. And, you know, we made babies together, creative babies, and we just made a space. You know, I think holding space is a practice. It's almost a sacred calling for me. Um, The kind of space you create where anyone can come in, doesn't matter who you are, what your baggage is, you know, what pronoun describes you. Um, You can be comfortable and be welcome. And that's the kind of space that I was interested in creating. Um, and there wasn't really, I mean, there's, this isn't like a new idea. So I don't want to sound like, oh my God, no one's ever thought of this before. Right. But I think what made Spock's work is that people need to relax. They need leisure. They need play. They need interaction. And, and the work and the communication and the connections that come from those relaxed environments sometimes are much more enduring than, you know, another Saturday meeting where everybody's sitting around a boardroom table and trying to, you know, solve a problem or plan an event. I mean, that's important too. And there's plenty of Spox meetings like that as well. But Right. Well, and it's, yeah. it's interesting because it is, Spox is building on a tradition and a legacy. And there have been other forms of affirming and this type of gathering for people of color in Seattle in the past. So that's really interesting to me that it's building upon 
a past legacy in Seattle. Do you know much about those histories or those other organizations? Well, luckily, I don't have to know everything. Like, as an organization, <laughs> Spox knows everything. It has, like, a hive mind. So I'm thinking of Zola Mumford, who's, like, a librarian slash historian. She knows mm-hmm. a ton. Um, so if I needed to know something, I'd go to her. I'd go to Leilani Lewis at, you know, the National totally. Island Northwest African American Museum and, and ask. But I do know that there is a tradition. Yeah. Like, I know that I didn't come to Seattle with some idea that no one had ever had. I just... Maybe the way I went about it, you know, mm-hmm. was you have, more sustainable. Do you have an aim for where it goes or how long it lasts? Or Oh, I hope Spox is kind of like Craigslist. But for like, I mean, this would be a really small version of what Spox could be. But I think the power of a network cannot be underscored. In 2015, mm-hmm. you need your network. Mm-hmm. You need people you can go to when so-and-so's cousin gets in a car wreck and needs an Indiegogo campaign funded so they can have surgery. Like, practical things. You need people who can tell you about the job that you're not going to hear about if they don't tell you about it and recommend you for it. You need a place to live in the right neighborhood. And in this town, it really does matter who you know. It really, really matters. For better or worse. You know. And... um, there aren't usually networks for people of color. You know, people of color are usually outside of the network. So having a network that centralizes the experiences and the art of people of color um, can do so much. I don't want to limit that. You know, Mm -hmm. I want to see what happens, but I definitely want um, Spocks to stick around because I've made friends here. I'm not lonely anymore. And I think there's a lot of people who are now moving to Seattle and within two months... You know, within two weeks, they hear about this, what is this Spox thing? You know, oh my God, I heard I can, I can meet other people of color. I can find out how to get to a, you know, First Nation sweat. I can um, find a Bhangra dance group, you know, like what? That's amazing. Let me figure out how to get with these people. And, you know, it's wonderful. I learned about private schools from people at Spox, like, There's so much that is particular to your experience as a person of color in terms of being isolated and usually like you're the only one or you're kept out of circles. So to have a circle where you do belong just by virtue of the fact that you identify as a person of color, that's it. That's all it takes to get you in. It's great. It's a great deal for everybody, you know. And it's not that we don't have public events and interact with other, other groups. It's not exclusive. It's inclusive. And, um... Uh, you know, Seattle is a complex place. So I have had many um, non-people of color, <laughs> translation white people, come to me and say, like, why can't I be in Spox? And I have to say that um, there's lots of ways to support Spox. Donate, come to the private, the public events, um, you know, get to know your local artists and support their work. Uh, people who are already out there doing the work just you know knowing who they are is helpful and then you can support that way but most of us bring whiteness with us we don't actually need to like go out of our way to include any more whiteness in this experience because we grew up in the same institutions many of us are like biologically mixed you know and um, you know, the president is black, but he's also half white. You know, we, we never really talk about how that works. How does that math work? But, um, 
yeah, so it's it's been there's some difficult conversations that happen even within like POC mm-hmm. groups, like just learning cultural fluency. You know, there's people in spots who may look white to other people, and they often have to explain, like, actually, no, um, I may look white to you, but I'm I'm a person of color, and this is how. And it's good for people of color to also learn that, like, we look different, you know, like, it, it may not be one thing in your head. It may be many things and many right. experiences. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I don't want to lose time also talking because we've talked a lot about your creative legacy and I think Spox is a huge part of that and I see this lovely train between leisure and play and experimentation and interactivity between the Spox work and the Mika Kiro work. Mm -hmm. I also know that you're a mother and you mentioned that and that's a huge part of your personal legacy can you talk oh, a, li- a little bit? <laughs> I'm so glad they're young now, so they can't <laughs> tell you, like, oh, God, my mother, she's always going on trips. She's always working. Um, when my daughter is old enough to write her memoir and the tell-all tale of, like, Mommy Dearest, we will all be like, oh, okay, so maybe she's not an awesome mom. But <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I have two kids. Um, my daughter's Roman. And she's going to be 11 in May. And my son, Sagan, is four. And having children, as you will soon find out, really redirects your priorities. It's For an artist, it's so important for it to be about us, actually. You, you need to have a big ego to believe that anything that you're doing might matter to <laughs> anyone else. It's, it's a job requirement. Ego is a job requirement for an artist. And to pretend like that isn't the case, it's just, a, it's just wasting everyone's time. That's why artists have egos. It's, it's part of it. It's part of the job. <laughs> so when you have to balance your artist's ego with these little people that need like food and shelter and attention, you know, that, that takes some work. Um, at the same time, you're never going to get a more complete experimental experience than watching Mm. your own DNA converge with somebody else's and grow before your eyes. It's ridiculous. Like you never know what's going to happen. Right. And there's no way to prepare for it. I don't, I don't care what people say. You can read every parenting book out there. The kid that you get will be the kid that they didn't describe in the parenting books you read, you know? So what are you going to do? But I'm, I was very inspired, um, by the process of being a mother for the first time. Um, I wrote, I wrote a, I kept a journal when I was pregnant with my daughter and I was working at a mortgage company. And so I'm, I'm like 25 and I'm writing to her about like the dailiness of living in Texas. And, and I gave that to her when she was 10 and she read the whole thing and she's just like, you were so different. You're so mm. different than you are now. Um, mm. I hadn't really come into my artist self at that age, I was just fresh out of grad school trying to figure out, you know. And was what your grad school an English degree? Yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> I got a master's degree in English so <laughs> I could be poor. Um, yeah, so the, the first exhibition book I put out for the Midnight Tea, I, I dedicated it to Roman. And I think the inscription was like, 
Come See Conquer um, because I wanted, uh, you know, the echo, obviously, of her name, Roman, and the spirit of what I ask everyone to do at the tea to kind of eclipse, you know, I think you have to conquer your fear to participate in a midnight mm-hmm. tea. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to start off knowing that you're going to conquer your fear, but ultimately that is what you will be doing. <laughs> so <laughs> there's that. And then with Sagan, I, in the same sort of tradition of keeping a journal, I ended up writing a poem every day. And some of these poems were really bizarre because you have crazy weird dreams when you're pregnant and um, your thoughts are sometimes seem to be controlled by a force that's not you you know you can get super paranoid you can get really hungry you can get teary and your you know your body doesn't seem to belong to you so that was a full experience and I wrote the majority of my first collection milk um when I was pregnant with Sagan and and breastfeeding Sagan and um wow I mean breastfeeding is so common everybody you know in the world there's Mm -hmm. breastfeeding everywhere you're not going to find a country where no one has ever breastfed anyone it's it's a human thing it's like eating and sleeping and pooping Mm -hmm. and breastfeeding but there's a lot of stigma still attached to breastfeeding there's a lot of Mm -hmm. economic considerations Mm -hmm. like who can breastfeed who can't how are our lives set up to make this possible or impossible for Mm -hmm. people i mean if you don't think about it, if you've never thought about it, then you've never thought about it. And I found myself thinking about things I had never thought about before. And, um, you know, the process of writing Milk, it was very personal. But of course, the challenge for every artist is to try to take uh, an experience that's very personal to you and make it universal to other people. Mm -hmm. And so I was thinking about sort of nurturing as a global concept like how do we take care of ourselves and each other again referencing my big hippie childhood so um yeah milk I I just did a lecture on milk um via Skype which was fun I've done a couple Skype lectures now I like living in you know the 21st century it feels good to be alive now totally that's possible you know technology can actually help us if we can get right um we can stop destroying our planet and maybe connect and use these lovely tools to mm-hmm. make things better and you know i talked to a class at the college of william and mary uh-huh. about um about milk what what led me to write the book and the certain specific issues that came up things like um you know the prison industrial complex there's three poems in milk called confinement one two three and I'm sort of comparing my experience as being like in this feminized female body and I say feminized because a pregnant woman is like an exponential woman like you're womanlier in your pregnant (laughs) state you know um what it's like to be inside of this body that has uh representational like has impact on other people you're almost like a public art piece people think they can touch you people want to talk to you people entitle you entitle themselves to your space in ways they want to give you advice unsolicited Mm -hmm. you know you could be at a grocery store pregnant and like five people want to tell you what you should be eating like who are you people you don't even know me yeah that is exactly the experience yeah so I uh I was thinking about that and I was thinking about like 
solitary confinement, you know, and just the way the artist brain merges concepts. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we try to make sense of things that don't necessarily make sense. I, you know, wrote some poems about that. And then weaning, weaning was huge, you know. Breastfeeding is huge, but also weaning a child that's been dependent on your body, that process, that that separation, mm-hmm. the unplugging is, that's intense. And I was thinking about, at least with one of the poems on weaning, I was thinking about ruins and monuments and, you know, ancient architectural sites, sort of something that was once really beautiful and alive, sort of the aftertime, what, what that feels like, what that looks like. And, um, Interesting. you know, all the milk turning to dust, kind of like the wizening period mm-hmm. where you feel because you feel very full and very capable of sustaining life as a pregnant person you're also almost tidal you know you're you you have tides that coincide mm-hmm. with your mm-hmm. child you know you could feel your milk come in um and you feel very compelled to like empty yourself like you're in physical discomfort until your baby nurses so um yeah, just thinking about things that I hadn't thought about before and then trying to make it like hey women's issues women people children and you, know. you and you of course were able to put sparkles in there i've seen sparkles. some i've i've seen some of your <laughs> some of the video footage on your uh, milk website mm. and love that you still have the ability to put a masquerade on and a wig yeah and your son is like cool this is my mom yes Yes. Um, I did make sure the whole world got to see my boobs while I had them. That was important to me (laughs) because they're gone now. So, yes, you two can Mm -hmm. see them on YouTube. If you put in Serifo's poem, you can see me breastfeeding my son. He was so little and cute. (laughs) And now he's bigger and cute. Yes. Yeah. Well, we could talk for hours, <laughs> as we already know. Yes, I do um, love talking to you. But thank you so much for coming and talking about all of these wonderful things. And I look forward to continuing to work with you at the Project Room. Thank you, and good luck to you. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. High five. High ten. Woo-hoo!